0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting? Or just starting over? On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablena Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And so far in our little series about Civil War medicine, we've focused on stories about doctors. But we'd be remiss if we didn't also discuss some of the other heroes who fall under this umbrella, Civil War nurses. And as we mentioned in the podcast about Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, women weren't really welcome in the army, or on the battlefield, especially at the start of the war. So first, all of the nurses, both on the Confederate and the Union side, were guys. However, most of the male nurses were just wounded soldiers who couldn't fight anymore, so they didn't really know that much about how to take care of sick people. They
2: didn't have much experience. But when both sides started to get overwhelmed with the sheer number of soldiers who were wounded or just sick, of course, it is the Civil War after all, uh, they needed even more help. And women really started to get interested in working, helping out, and wrapped up in the whole challenge of tending for these men. And the armies didn't relent at first, but some women just kept pushing until
1: they were able to help. They just would not take no for an answer. And then eventually the governments on both sides eased up on their gender rules and thousands of women, about 20,000 in fact, ended up serving as nurses during the Civil War. You'll often hear them referred to as angels of the battlefield, hence the title to this podcast. And some of them, like Walker, actually had some sort of medical training. If you'll remember, she actually volunteered as a nurse before being commissioned as an assistant surgeon. But there were many others who were just courageous women who knew something about sanitation, and they had experience treating sick family members. And so we're going to talk about five of these Civil War nurses, and by no means is this an exhaustive list. There are so many that we aren't able to include, but we think that these are worthy entries just the same. So first, we're going to start out with a nurse who served on the Confederate side of the war. Early on in the war, by about July of 1861, hospitals in the South filled up, and the Confederate government asked locals to help by setting up private hospitals. And the most famous was one set up by a woman named Sally Tompkins.
2: So Sally Louisa Tompkins was born November 9th, 1833, into a family with a long military tradition. Her grandfather, Colonel John Patterson, had been commissioned by George Washington himself during the Revolutionary War. And this was probably one reason, the strong military tradition was one reason that uh, Tompkins supported the Confederate cause so passionately. But she was also very passionate about her commitment to the Episcopal Church. And it was through her church that she initially got involved in charitable efforts like nursing. You're going to see a, a church connection with several of these ladies, in fact. She was used to tending the sick, uh, even slaves on plantations near where she lived. So she
1: she had experience um, nursing. Yeah, and she didn't discriminate in that department. And after her father died, Tompkins and her mother moved to Richmond from Matthews County, Virginia, and joined St. James Episcopal Church there. And that's where Sally got to know some prominent people in Richmond including a person named Judge John Robertson. And after the war started, Robertson moved his family to the country to keep them safe, and he allowed Tompkins to convert his vacant home in Richmond into a 22-bed private hospital. She did this mostly with her own funds, and she named it Robertson Hospital in honor of the judge. The hospital opened up July 31, 1861.
2: So if you're going to have a hospital, you need to have doctors, too. And she got Dr. A.Y.P. Garnett to be her chief surgeon and another six doctors or so to work under him. And Sally also had a group of female volunteers recruited called the Ladies of Robertson Hospital to help her manage things and and staff the whole operation. And Robertson Hospital was known for being especially efficient and well-organized, but above all, for being especially clean. Sally had been described as being obsessed with cleanliness and sanitation. And, of course, this was really before people knew a whole lot about the link between sanitation and preventing infection. But it's suspected that this is why she was able to save an unusually high number of lives at, at her hospital.
1: Yeah, and we're going to talk about that a little more in just a bit. But the road wasn't entirely smooth for Sally's hospital. In September of 1861, just a few weeks after the hospital had opened, the government decided to close all private hospitals And that's, I mean, there are several reasons for this, but some of the hospitals were charging too much and keeping soldiers longer than they really needed to. And so the Army wanted to place them under the control of the Confederate Medical Department instead. But Robertson Hospital was going to be closed as part of this decision. But Tompkins fought back. She appealed to President Jefferson Davis himself, and she showed him her records, which showed the really high percentage of soldiers that she'd helped get back to the battlefield already. And Davis was convinced by... By this And he agreed to let Robertson Hospital come under the Army's control, which would, among other things, give them access to whatever supplies the Army had. And as part of this, Sally was commissioned as a captain in the Confederate cavalry on September 9th, 1861. But even though she accepted that commission, she refused to accept any Army pay and preferred to get food and medicine for the men instead. And that's another thing I think
2: you'll notice with a few of these ladies, this real selfless quality. Um, sometimes to their own detriment in the end. But this commission as captain in the Confederate cavalry made her the first woman in the country to hold a military rank during wartime and the only woman officer to serve in the Confederate army. And it caught on soon she became known affectionately as captain sally and robertson hospital stayed open for the duration of the war and captain sally spent basically all of her time there tending to patients with her medicine bag and her bible in tow and really earned a reputation for her healing hands actually patients seemed to Seem to notice her hands in particular.
1: Yeah, they called her the Little Lady with the Milk White Hands. That was one of her nicknames, in addition to Captain Sally. And according to an article by Reed Alvord in Civil War Times, several soldiers proposed marriage to her. I mean, they weren't just taken by her hands. I guess they were taken by her. The whole package. Yes, but she turned them all down and would say, quote, Poor fellows, they are not yet well of their fevers. And she stayed single her entire life.
2: So on June 13th, 1865, Robertson Hospital closed, and in four years, 1,333 patients had been treated there. And out of all of those patients, only 73 had died, which is a 94.5% survival rate. And it's said to have had the lowest mortality rate of any military hospital during the Civil War. Again, maybe because of her insistence on high sanitation standards, cleanliness, all of that.
1: And she didn't stop there. Captain Sally continued to devote her life to philanthropy until she died in July of 1916 at the age of 83. And she was buried with full military honors. But we should say that at her time of death, she was pretty much completely broke because she had spent all of her money on these philanthropic efforts.
2: All right. So for our next entry, we're going to move to the Union side and talk about the famous nurse Mary Ann Bickerdike. And she was originally from Knox County, Ohio, and attended Oberlin College and later trained in botanic and homeopathic medicine. And after her husband, Robert Bickerdike died in 1859, she continued to practice botanic medicine and apparently did some private nursing as well. So she she had a good background going into this whole thing. And she wanted to spend the rest of her life helping people who were ill or who were in pain.
1: Yeah, I read that that desire to help people actually stemmed from her reaction to her husband's death. And her grief there. But in June of 1861, her church congregation put her in charge of making sure a bunch of food and medical supplies made it to a makeshift army hospital in Cairo, Illinois. And she was in her mid-40s or so at the time. But when she got there, she was really appalled at the conditions that she found. They were extremely unsanitary. So she immediately got to work cleaning, cooking, and offering her nursing services there. Soon she became matron or head nurse there, and her cleanup effort spread to several other military hospitals in the area. By spring of 1862 or so, Marianne began traveling around to other areas, too, trying to set up clean conditions for medical treatment wherever she went and establish mobile laundries and kitchens. And she was also relentless in trying to forge for supplies for wounded or sick soldiers. She really was. She would
2: raid government supplies without permission. She would even take things from care packages that had been sent to healthy soldiers. So, in other words, she did not always play by the rules. And at first, Marianne really didn't have any sort of official status with the Army. But that didn't stop her from being pretty pushy and lending a hand or lending her opinion when it came to the medical treatment of soldiers. She even called doctors out on certain occasions when she thought that they were stealing soldiers' medicine or food or just somehow not acting professionally. And at one point, when a battlefield surgeon asked her who gave her permission to do what she was doing, you know, like, why are you here? Mary Ann famously (laughs) responded. Quote, I have received my authority from the Lord
1: God Almighty. Have you anything that ranks higher than that? It's tough to argue. Sassy lady. Yes, she was. And she eventually did get a bit more influence. She was named an agent of the U.S. Sanitation Commission in 1862, and she earned the respect and friendship of two very important men, Generals Ulysses S. Grant and William T. Sherman. And when someone once complained about Marianne to Sherman, Sherman said to have told the person, Quote, well, she ranks me and recommended that that person, the complainer, register his complaint with Abraham Lincoln instead. Take it up a notch. Exactly. Once, though, Sherman did get frustrated with Marianne and asked if she'd ever heard of a little thing called insubordination. According to an article in America's Civil War by Alice Stein, Marianne responded, quote, You bet I've heard of it. It's the only way I ever get anything done in this army.
2: And she really did get a lot done in addition to improving hospital conditions and scavenging for supplies and helping treat soldiers. She became well known for scouring battlefields to make sure that no wounded but living soldiers were left out there all alone. And on at least one occasion, she's said to have done this by herself at night with just a lantern.
1: To soldiers she cared for, Marianne became known as Mother Bickerdike. And because she was so tireless, some also called her the Cyclone in Calico. Which I think, doesn't that sound like maybe a young adult story? It really does. That would be about Civil
2: War nurses. Go write it, somebody.
1: (laughs) According to Encyclopedia Britannica, about 300 field hospitals were built under Marianne's supervision during the war. And when the war was over, she resigned from the Sanitary Commission to devote the rest of her life to charitable deeds until she died in 1901.
2: All right, so moving on to our next entry, we're heading south again, and this time we're going to talk about Juliet Ann Opie Hopkins, who's also known appropriately enough as the Angel of the South. And unlike some of the other nurses on our list, Juliet Ann Opie Hopkins is probably better remembered as a hospital administrator than as a hands-on nurse, though she did get shot in the hip during the Battle of Seven Pines, so she certainly put in her time. Still though, her influence was great enough for Robert E. Lee to praise her work and for her to become a pretty well-known figure in the South during the war.
1: Just a little bit about her background. She was born Juliet Ann Opie, May seventh, 1818, on a Virginia plantation, and she was pulled out of school at 16 when her mother died, making her mistress of the house and of more than 2,000 slaves. She was married in her teens and widowed in her early 20s, and Opie didn't marry again until her mid-30s when she wed Arthur Francis Hopkins, a much older widower and the former Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court and at the time, president of the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. So she moved
2: south to Alabama, but she and her husband really didn't stay in Mobile for very long because when the Civil War started and Alabama went along with the whole thing, Hopkins knew that the Alabama men fighting up in Virginia would need some sort of medical assistance. They would be without help, essentially. And at the start of the war, there wasn't yet a united Confederate response to treating the wounded, as we know from talking about Tompkins a minute ago. So it was left to states or even individuals like Tompkins or like Hopkins to take care of setting up hospitals for long-term treatment,
1: as well as for setting up those field camps at the front lines of battles. So by the first battle of Manassas, she had already had a great reputation for quickly setting up facilities, for staffing them, and for provisioning them. And she could turn a tobacco factory into a hospital in a matter of hours if there were wounded men waiting for beds, just to give you an example of how quick she was. By November 1861, the Alabama legislature finally began authorizing and provisioning state hospitals in Virginia. They set aside $30,000 for costs and made Judge Hopkins the hospital superintendent. Although they likely knew full well that the ailing 69-year-old judge wouldn't be the one who was doing all the work. His wife would. Mrs. Hopkins would. And one of Mrs. Hopkins'
2: great skills was not relying on that patchy funding from the Alabama state legislature, though. According to an article by James Knowles in America's Civil War, she would raise money from women's auxiliary clubs, from the Grand Lodge of the Masonic Order of Alabama, and even Tuskegee schoolgirls who would put on concerts and say, and you know, fifty or sixty dollars, something like that. Uh, she also used a considerable part of her own and her husband's fortunes to staff those field camps and, and set them up in the first place.
1: By late 1862, the Confederate Congress was starting to consolidate these state-run hospitals into larger facilities in Richmond, as we mentioned with Tompkins. By December 1863, the Alabama legislature finally stopped funding, and the Hopkins hospitals were looped in under one Confederate department. So Mrs. Hopkins went home to Alabama and had her picture put on some of the state's currency. She
2: was kind of a hero in her own state.
1: Yep. She nursed her husband until his death shortly after the war and ultimately relocated to New York where she lived for several more decades before dying in Washington D.C. and being buried in Arlington Cemetery.
2: We wanted to include a quote about Mrs. Hopkins because of course for a nurse the best testimony is not going to come from General Lee but from one of her own patients. Uh, One of these guys, Private Willie S. Campbell from the 5th Alabama Infantry, wrote of his 1862 stay in one of her hospitals, quote, I'm very comfortably located in the hospital and expect to remain here but a few days. This hospital and also the 2nd Alabama are under the charge of Mrs. Hopkins of Mobile. They're kept clean and nice. The fare, though plain, is nevertheless good and such as the sick ought to have. The physicians in charge, Drs. Morgan and Stinson, are very attentive. In short, a sick man fares finely here in comparison to the other hospitals.
1: Next up on our list, we have a very well-known nurse who was involved in the Union War effort, Dorothea Dix. And she's probably one of the most notable names on this list, and it seems like a really natural fit due to her prestigious title during the war, Superintendent of Army Nurses. But strangely enough, it's her career before the war that she's best known for, and it's her decidedly non-military experience that got her that job in the first place. She's kind of
2: a contradiction here. So, born April fourth, eighteen 1802, in Hampton, Maine. Dix was the daughter of a prosperous Boston family's black sheep. She has such an interesting, kind of sad childhood, but her father, Joseph, had been a divinity student at Harvard when he met and married a lady 18 years his senior and much below his social standing. And not only did Joseph get kicked out of school for this, because he couldn't be married at the time, his father also exiled him to the Maine frontier to manage lands. He really didn't do much of that. He preferred to pursue itinerant preaching, which was not a lucrative career. So Dorothea grew up poor and with an often absent father and a sickly mother and two little brothers, so not much of a childhood at all.
1: So at 12, she decided she wanted something better for herself, and she ran away and she went to her wealthy Boston grandmother, who tried to turn her into a nice young lady and give her an education. Biographer Dorothy Wilson wrote that her grandmother tried to instill quote, industry, inflexible dignity, economy, perfection in manners, Spartan discipline, and puritanical piety in her. And it must have worked because only two years later, the formerly uneducated Dorothea went to to live with a great aunt in Worcester and started a school for the children of the city's elite there. So
2: a 14-year-old teacher, or a 14-year-old school mistress, actually. It's it's pretty remarkable to, to think of how much she must have learned in those two years.
1: It is, and she didn't stop there. By the time she returned to Boston, she was considered, by the way, quite beautiful and accomplished. She skipped out on a debutante lifestyle and opted instead to start a school there as well. So soon she was managing two schools. She was educating wealthy children in her grandmother's home in the morning and then teaching poor kids in the afternoon for free.
2: So by her mid-30s, she had had a broken engagement uh, over her refusal to stop teaching and stop writing and stop all of her charitable pursuits um, and had also suffered from several spells of exhaustion and ill health. Dorothea was trying to figure out what she was going to do with her life and by this point also with her wealth because her grandmother had left her a pretty sizable fortune. So By chance, Dorothea was asked by a Harvard Divinity student in 1841 whether she knew anybody who might like to teach Sunday school to female prisoners in Cambridge. And Dorothea volunteered herself, and after the lesson, she had a little tour of the jail, including the areas where the criminally insane were kept. And she was just horrified by what she saw there. They were kept in cold, dank cells with no heat. I mean, this is... This is Massachusetts, too. So think about that. And only rags for clothing. And Dorothea was told that they couldn't feel things like sane people could. Don't worry about them. It was all okay. But... She was deeply disturbed and started to talk to doctors and mental health experts who were beginning to understand that contrary to popular belief at the time, mental illness was something that was physical, not a spiritual problem. And therefore, not something that families needed to be ashamed of, because often if families couldn't tend for their own mentally ill at home, the sick would just wind up in jail or in poor houses where the conditions
1: were often terrible. So Dix began a campaign for better state facilities, first surveying the mentally ill of Massachusetts and moving on from there. In the 1850s, she did similar surveys in Russia, at the Vatican, and in Turkey. And it was her fame as a champion for the mentally ill and her connection to governors, senators, and other really high-powered people that got her appointed as the superintendent of army nurses. And interestingly, it wasn't until the war that Dix had even become a public critic critic of slavery. Although she had long been personally against it, it's just that she hadn't wanted to risk alienating the South.
2: Exactly. But once the war really started, she worked to organize volunteer nurses into corps and improve conditions in the hospitals and camps. But she wasn't quite as beloved in her service for the army as she was in her civilian life. Some of her critics thought she was kind of inflexible as an administrator and that drive for perfection, which was, of course, the quality that had made her so successful as a reforming or you know, a really vigilant kind of person made her less popular with doctors when she went about trying to reform their operations. And so as soon as the war was over, she was completely relieved to get back to her work uh, as a champion for the mentally ill and was ultimately responsible for creating 32 asylums in the U.S. and improving many, many more and maybe most importantly, helping to change people's attitudes about how to how to care for people with mental illnesses.
1: She died in New Jersey in 1887. The last person on our list is perhaps even more well-known than Dix. I feel like we get requests to cover this person every so often, don't you think, Sarah? I think we do. And she was known as the Angel of the Battlefield. I think that was her nickname first so before we it became just generally known as...
2: All the nurses were the angels. Clara Barton was...
1: The angel of the battlefield. Yes, and while she didn't go into the war as famous as Dorothea Dick, she came out of it even better known, was probably maybe the best known of all the Civil War nurses. She was born Clarissa Harlow Barton in North Oxford, Massachusetts, on Christmas Day in 1821, and she was the youngest of five kids of a prosperous farmer. And she grew up riding horses, hearing war stories from her father, and getting her early nursing training by tending to her brother who had been injured in a fall.
2: So at age 18, she became a teacher, worked at that for about 10 years before leaving briefly to attend college, and then when she was done with that, went back to work as a teacher and even established her own school in New Jersey. She had a bad experience with that, though. She had raised funds for the school and set it up successfully, and as soon as it was kind of on its feet and doing well, um, a man was appointed as her supervisor, so she quit, quit teaching entirely and moved to... Washington, D.C. to go to work for the patent office as a copyist. And that was a good place for her to be because she started making some influential friends like Senators Charles Sumner, who we talked about, I think, on the interview with David McCullough podcast and uh, Senator Henry Wilson. Uh, as well. And just incidentally, I know a lot of the nurses we've talked about have been single. Barton never married as well, even though she had numerous suitors, including a 49er who must have done quite well in his pursuit of gold because he sent her $10,000 at one point as an unsuccessful enticement to wed.
1: And was still shot down. I can't believe it. <laughs> so when the Civil War began, Barton started volunteering immediately. She'd meet men arriving in D.C. from New England and treat their sunstroke or other ailments from the road. And she recognized a lot of the kids from New England as her former students. And soon enough, families from Massachusetts and New Jersey started to send her supplies, knowing that she'd get them to their boys. So not long after Barton started doing this, she decided to leave her job and start working as a volunteer nurse for the Union Army full-time. Her first order of business was to single handedly started a campaign to get the word out that the army was really badly in need of supplies. So she advertised in newspapers and talked to as many people as she could, and people from just about every northern state responded sending food, medicine and bandages. Eventually she needed three warehouses to store it all.
2: And by 1862, Clara was visiting battlegrounds herself. She would lead teams of volunteers out to the front lines and deliver supplies. And once she was there, she'd walk around and tend to the wounded men lying on the ground and bring them things like gruel or tea and wine. And um, just as an example, in August 1862, she arrived at the Second Battle of Bull Run or Manassas, as we called it earlier, with three railroad cars of supplies and four volunteers. and she just until the last possible second. The train carried her off just as the Confederate troops were rounding a hill behind her, right where she had been tending to men a few minutes earlier. So obviously life on the front lines did mean some close calls. She had a bullet pass through her sleeve and kill a wounded man who she was tending. And she also had an exploding shell tear off part of her skirt as an officer was helping her over a bridge and some debris.
1: She became known as the Florence Nightingale of America or the Angel of the Battlefield, as we mentioned, and troops would cheer when she arrived. Even get out the brass band sometimes. But by the war's midpoint, better organization meant that the provisioning wasn't quite as desperate. So officers with the U.S. Sanitary Commission started to turn down Barton's help. She got sent back to D.C. and was actually depressed, maybe even suicidal at this time, according to the Women in World History Encyclopedia. Fortunately, though, Senator Henry
2: Wilson pulled through for his buddy Clara and got her papers restored, and she went to work for Grant's army and served throughout the remainder of the war. But even after the fighting was over, she really kept her position as a soldier's advocate and worked at first independently to locate missing men on behalf of families who had been writing to her throughout the war and was ultimately granted a government allowance and helped to create these lists of missing men that were circulated around the country so you could um, run them by hospitals or, or prisons and determine which ones had actually died in battle and, and presumably give some closure to some of those families.
1: In her later years, Barton is of course known for creating the American Red Cross in the United States and for heading it up for 23 years. She died in Maryland in 1912.
2: So that rounds out our nurses podcast our Civil War nurses podcast again there were so many to choose from and so many who would be great interesting uh, full length entries yeah or full length podcasts I mean Mm -hmm. I think several of these ladies could have could have had entire podcasts
1: yeah and honestly I think that's probably why we didn't bring in a couple of them because we thought They could probably deserve a little bit more attention. Later, yeah. Not that these don't. We'll probably mention a few of these ladies down the road too. But we just thought it would be cool to include them on this list. I
2: think, too, looking at at, at the big picture of several of the nurses we've talked about, it does seem like they have an an interesting role they play in how the war progresses. They're there in the beginning when things are really desperate and. Help is much needed. And then some of them get sort of shuttled to the side as things get better organized and um, men get put into the higher up positions. Yet some of them manage to hold on, too, like Marianne Bickerdike. I mean, it, it just depends on the personality and maybe the people they were working under, too.
1: Yeah. And even if they, even after the war ended, they didn't let that slow them down, they just kind of kept going and kept serving others. And it just showed that that was such a big part of not just what they needed to do in that moment to help their country, but of who they were.
2: It reminded me very slightly of women going to work during World War II, and uh, that obviously affecting some people, making them want to keep working after the war. And I I have to imagine that at least some of these, what did you say, 20,000 nurses Mm -hmm. wanted to, to keep working after the actual battle was done.
1: Well, like I said, we'll probably... Make an effort to try to find out about some more of those in the future and maybe even another part of the series, maybe another episode for the series down the road. Um, if we are so inclined or if you guys are so inclined, you're certainly welcome to write to us and let us know if there are other nurses that you would love to hear about. And before we sign off, we want to give a shout out to all our listeners who are nurses. We hear from a lot of you guys. So we do. Thank you. Thank for your you hard for work. listening. And if you have any suggestions of nurses or any other kind of episode topic for us, please write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also look us up on Facebook or we're on Twitter at Mist in History. And we have lots of
2: medical health type of content on our website. You can find it all by visiting our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class.
1: The richest, most powerful place on Earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is
2: everything. Power gives everything.
1: We have to get away from this place.
2: Tuman Bay. Is our destiny.
1: Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tumen Bay. Be
2: served and die for
1: Tumen Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tumen Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.